0: From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Raj Nation and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast growing startups work with me because they wanna become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Seattle, Washington and currently residing in New York City and San Juan, Puerto Rico. She is the founder of Get Shit Done. Look up in the sky. Is it Batman? Is it Batwoman? No, it is Alex Batdorf.
1: I love that. I want that intro everywhere I go.
0: (laughs) Well, I will have my media team clip that for you and you can just play it on your phone anytime you enter a room.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm here for it. I'm here for it all.
0: So she is Alex Batdorf, founder of Get Shit Done. This is actually her second appearance on the show. What does Get Shit Done do? Well, they help female entrepreneurs gain traction to scale successfully on their own terms. And I think the second half of that phrase is especially important on their own terms. So whatever that means and whatever scale and traction looks like for that company, Alex's company is helping to get it done through their very successful Accelerator program. Uh, When we first had Alex on the show, you had actually just gotten started. You had just launched Get Shit Done. I don't even know if you had the website up yet. Uh, I know you had a newsletter you had started, but (laughs) um, I don't think the website was up yet. Uh, But now you, a couple years later, I think you've had what, maybe more than four cohorts go through your program at this point, right?
1: Yeah, this is, well, in the year, it's been for the accelerator program, since that's one of the things we do. We've done the accelerator, it's now a year. So we've served 40 companies in a year, four cohorts. So we usually have around 10 companies per cohort.
0: Yeah. So serving 40 companies at this point across their cohorts and as we can all agree, this last year has just been crazy to say the least. But a lot of the companies who have been going through the Get Shit Done Accelerator have actually been experiencing a lot of traction in the face of a pandemic. And that's what we're talking about today. Different examples of traction in the pandemic. Now, Alex, usually my first question is, why is this on your mind? Why is it important to you? I think that's obvious. But so instead of asking that, uh, what I want to ask instead is, how do you define traction? And how do you feel, maybe is it misrepresented uh, when people do think about the concept of traction?
1: Oh, this is such a topic near and dear to me that I'm constantly clapping back on because I am a clapback queen. Uh, (laughs) But traction to me and why the on your own terms is really important is that the startup ecosystem has been really really overamped with what I call being stuck in a VC time zone. And so there's so much glamorization around startups that raise capital. And that is what the quote unquote standard bunny ears standard of success that we're shoving down founders throats. The issue with that narrative is that it is not an accessible vehicle for the majority of companies. So I am a sociologist by nature. So my brain thinks in connections and systems and how those connections and systems end up impacting collectives of people. And what ends up happening is we take things out of context very often. So for example, when we talk about funding, right, 2% goes to women, but it's like, yeah, let's zoom out though. That's a 0.004% that goes to everybody. So within that context, it's problematic. But if you zoom out, it's not a vehicle for most businesses because people don't really talk about what it actually means. And we can get into that later, but don't talk about what it means to actually be on a VC track. And most founders are not about that life. They just don't know it yet. And this is coming from someone who self-funded and went the VC route, but traction is the thing that founders can control right now, because we're stuck in a VC time zone. We are telling founders, be dependent, your success is dependent on you rely on everything outside of, outside of yourself. Rely on that check for you to be successful. Rely on that person for you to be successful instead of saying, how about you look in your wheelhouse? Cause that's really where the most successful companies come from is them building the traction. So when they get to the table, whether they do the VC route or not, they get to the table, whether it's partnership, investor, that they have some leverage they have the power in that relationship. So they're not a pawn. They're also a partner with that person. So it can like, I mean, level, always revenue. It could look like users. It could look like developing a piece of proprietary technology. It could look like establishing a rock star team, moats. People can be team, or people can be moats. A team can be a moat for a company, but these are not the things we talk about. Typically the landscape and the ecosystem tends to get really, really sidetracked and siloed in the VC time zone saying traction is when you go raise a couple million, which is very, very toxic. And it's dangerous because all of these founders are wasting their time when many of them are not in the position to raise capital, nor will they ever for a good majority of them be in the position because it's not in, in alignment with the type of company nor with the trajectory that they're trying to go down, or the impact that they're trying to make, but the ecosystem doesn't make it any easier for easier for them because we're not talking about what it actually means to get traction to be in alignment with where you're ultimately wanting to take your company.
0: That is a four hundred level lecture. I think you just gave everyone right
1: there. You know, I'd be preaching all day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> My grandmother is like a first lady of our church, so she get a little <laughs> bit of that from her. <laughs>
0: Okay, so that's actually an interesting segue. The first time we talked on the podcast was a couple of years ago. Uh, everyone listening you can go back and listen to that episode to learn a lot of Alex's backstory and to getting into the startup game in the first place. I always one thing I'll never forget from that conversation is when we were talking about like your college experience, uh, and then I think I asked you a question about like. So what happened after college? And then your response was like, you mean when I exited college? And I was like, oh, you are so in the startup life that you said exited college instead of graduated college.
1: (laughs) I I will always remember that about you. Get me Uh, out of there. Like I'm I'm (laughs) one of those people, I'm such a like, I'm a ferocious learner, but I'm a hands-on learner. So I'm super grateful for the school I went to because it is a fucking intellectual nerdy ass hub. And I thrive off of that, but I need to apply for me to learn stuff. I have to apply. So like just being in school to be in school is not interesting. I'm like, okay, I've gotten some of the chops. Let's go and do it. So that's actually why I started my first company in college. Yeah, (laughs) And then I'm i like, it's time to do the next.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So again, everyone go back and listen to that episode. If you really want to learn more about that side of Alex, I want to ask you a couple of questions though, before we get into the main topic, Uh, a little, uh, on a little bit different lens about yourself and your background. And you mentioned your grandmother is a, you said a, a preacher at a high church. Is that how you phrased it?
1: No, she's like a, a first lady, but she leads oh, a lot, first, of, okay. a lot yeah, of their calls. So,
0: yeah. So tell me what was like, what was your family dynamic like growing up? And how do you feel that shaped your perspective and worldview?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So my family looks like the United Nations, quite frankly, (laughs) everybody married outside of their race. So it's just like, it's a mix of every Indian, everything, especially actually on both sides, my dad's side and my mom's side, for the most part, except maybe one sibling kind of kept it within, but everybody else kind of like Samoan, Hispanic, white, like everyone's mixed in black somewhere. But I personally, my parents, my, my father was white and my mom is African-American and In terms of like where I, the context I think is really important, like where I grew up, like West Coast, Northwest Seattle area. And I don't think when people think of Washington State, like that, it's just like this melting pot. And it really is, at least where I grew up, there's a huge military presence. My dad was in the military. So I grew up with so many people looking like me, meaning mixed race, like curly hair. Like the first time I actually moved outside of the seattle area was when i went to college in chicago and chicago for those that are not familiar and know you know raj you're very familiar is very segregated and that was like startling to me because of where i grew up is that well and I, especially
0: a, like at u C, right where the yeah. student the diversity of student population oh is basically it's, non-existent
1: it's four percent black yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's like everything black that's like african african-american caribbean like four percent so it was really startling for me because it was the first time that I had gone somewhere and, and I was in Chicago, and people were like, "Oh, what are you?" and I'm like, "What? What do you mean?" <laughs> but they're just like, "You're exotic, you're this and that," and I'm like, "Oh, you guys exotic? Don't well, y'all don't me. It's yeah, it's so funny. I get that all the time. And I'm like, "Okay," whereas back home, people just they're like, "You're mixed, you're this and that." So I grew up with that, but more importantly, just the mindset of my parents very open, liberal. I, my parents got divorced when I was like 10, but I had very loving parents. But my mom was one of those people that I don't have one of those stories. Like a lot of some entrepreneurs have, where they're like, Ooh, I had like a lemonade stand and I was an entrepreneur, but I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur at the time I Was five. I was like, no, it wasn't. I was like that kid that wanted to explore everything. So I was privileged enough to have a mom where I'm like, Ooh, I want to do tap today. Or I want to do basketball or I want to do soccer. And I would kind of hyperachiever, do something, conquer, and then like, oh, next thing, do guitar, let's do flute, let's, you know, whatever. And I think that really helped to shape because I had such a supportive, open family. And I don't feel like I had a lot of the gender normative bullshit stuff that maybe some other people go through in their families. So it was like sky's the limit. From when I was a kid, people used to ask me, What do you want to be when you grow up? And my mom used to be like, oh, my God, this kid. People are going to think she's crazy. But I would always used to say, I'm going to rule the world. And I like adults would laugh and I would just like dead ass. Like there's no smile on my face. And they're like, oh, okay." And and what I meant by that was more so I'm going to make an impact. I didn't know what that was going to be. But it was gonna be something, and fast forward, I go to school in Chicago, and from there, that's what gave me the entrepreneurial bug. Because there's something. Actually, I don't think it's something. I'm a, I'm like a Gladwellian, so I love Malcolm Gladwell, and he talks about like outliers or whatnot. But he looks at history, so whether you look at like millennials when Rockefeller was around. There was a moment in time that these mobiles came out of or innovation came out of because of what was happening. In particular, I got into school in 2008 and I graduated 2012. 2008, I'm coming into school when there is an economic crisis happening. And so my class, we were, I think the first class that really became like the, like started entrepreneurship at U of C, like in a big way. A lot of us went on to Y Combinators, Getting funding from investors, so on and so forth. But I think it was because we came into school at a time where we basically were like, we were fed a lie. This is bullshit because there's people that are exiting school <laughs> <are exiting laughs> right now, and you told them you come to this fancy ass school, you get that fancy ass degree, and you're gonna have the world in your hands. No, honey, they have hundreds of thousands in debt, and they have nothing to show for right now. And so I think that was like the catalyst of like, fuck all of y'all. We're going to do it our way. We're going to figure out how we're going to do this because no one has our back. Um, And I think that's just like a sign of millennials. And then Gen Z took it to another level. So we prepped it up for them and we're like YOLO. And they're just like, no, get out of our way. And it's awesome to see. But I think a lot of that like got me into my entrepreneurial career more so because Despite my mom being very type A and like very risk averse, she kind of allowed me to explore. And that kind of led me to being able to say, ooh, this is how I want to make an impact. And my family gave me a lot of room. So yeah, that's kind of where I came from. And my family's fucking dope. They're just cool.
0: Awesome, you can say that. Uh, I, I love my family as well, and think they're awesome. But I know a lot, not a lot of people share that opinion about their own families that they think their family no. is dope. You know, I want to touch on the, the point of uh, education there because I think about this a lot, and I, I think I agree with it to a point. And here's where I deviate in that, like, so that notion of like, sold a bill of goods, go to a you know, get a nice degree for four years, the world will be handed to you after that. I think that, like, so yes and i say it to a point because i think for a lot of people who ended up unhappy i also think the part that they for they missed out on was like but you also have to like try when you're in school and apply yourself and i think there's a lot of people who went to college thinking like well i don't have to do anything while i'm here and then they wonder why they hate their job five and ten years out and haven't figured out their calling so to speak so like and i'm like okay is the money issue of course has to be figured out the debt issue has to be figured out that's a separate topic but in terms of like the that whole like oh you were told this and it's not the reality i wonder how much of that is like on the school because they can provide the platform for you and how much of that is on the individual student to take up agency for themselves and be like well hey if i don't apply myself for 4 years and literally i just do the bare minimum of showing up to class and getting like semi decent grades like, what? I think there should be more like a realignment of expectations that like, well, then here's what's going to happen if you don't do anything. And I'm not saying everyone has to get amazing grades in college, but I think even if you look at the people who didn't perform well academically in college, they did other things during that time that fostered or engendered like their passions and their interests.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think there's a couple things here that stick out to me. The first is that we have created—it's literally statistically proven—we created a, in the U.S. in particular a society that basically says pay to play. It is literally shown in wealth distribution and wages that if you have higher education, you are going to make exponentially more. But I think we're—we've already been here, but we're definitely with the pandemic moving into an era where I think it's really challenging this construct of education because I, in higher education, because I think that we are in a such a knowledge sharing economy that I don't think it makes schooling absolute obsolete because I want to go back and change it. I love the school I went to, but I don't think it's for everybody. And I'm actually at this point where, when I do have kids, I'm going to have a conversation with them when they turn 18. Do you want to go to school or what else do you want to do? Because I think there's all these different ways. And we're seeing this with, you know, I'm seeing this with Gen Z for sure, is that they're figuring it out on their own because they have access to like, there's Khan Academy on YouTube. Like there's just so much. So I think that's the first part. Like someone like my brother, he dropped out of college and he has a very successful business in Washington state and they're actually booming in the pandemic. It's a services company. And so he had an experience where when he was in class, he took an entrepreneur class, and he said to the guy after, he was like, hey, I just want to be real with you. He was like, have you ever been an entrepreneur? And the guy was like, no. He was just like, do you feel like you should be teaching this class? And he was like, the professor was like, I mean, they paid me for it. And <laughs> that was the day my brother was just like, yeah, college isn't for me, <laughs> you No. Know? Um, So, and he's fine, but I think there's also the issue there is that the world's constructed where we've said, go pay six figures for the degree and you're going to get somewhere. I think we're transitioning out, but there's still going to be a need for people who are like, I love school. Like that helps me to apply myself and think and whatnot. Once what we need to look at with schools, in my opinion now, and to your point is there needs to be application. And I'll talk about my particular experience at University of Chicago. I like so many of my my mentors who maybe went to UC or knew of it, they're just like, you're like a black sheet. Like I'm social. I'm not socially awkward whatsoever. I'm energetic. And like C is very nerdy. Like there's 90 Nobel laureates that came out that bitch. Like it's just <laughs> it is like it is the intellectual hub. Like it's just that. It's like um, Hogwarts. It's like Hogwarts. It really, it really is. <laughs> Especially like, with like
0: have, the dorm setup and everything. Like The dorm <laughs> setup is
1: just like that. It really is. <laughs> and the undergrad is also small. It's 4,000 people. And I think what ends up happening, and I saw this with a lot of people, is that we're teaching, we will tell them like, go and learn this and think, but then how do you apply it? So I knew going into UFC, I'm like, I'm not going to be the smartest motherfucker here. And I don't want to be. Like, there's people like I went to school with like Ruth Bader Ginsburg's granddaughter like these are the people that like have access I didn't even do SAT prep actually had awful scores on SAT (laughs) so that wasn't my world and so I'm like well what is can I do really well here and I'm an application thinker like kinesthetic hands-on so I was getting internships and applying what I did in the classroom in a real world setting and I think for where schools need to go now that has to be embedded in it. And I know some schools do it, but absolutely, I I think that in order for higher education to work, and so we're not in the place like what we're seeing in politics and part of the country where we are feeding people a a messed up dream, thinking that they're going to keep their jobs when it's a natural trend, like progression of society, that technology advances. Society does too, but there is a huge gap of people that get left behind because we're not giving them the tools and the way to apply. How do you move along as society is progressing with us? So it can't just be about thinking all the time, it needs to be about application so that we have a strong society holistically of people that can keep up. So, yeah, that's kind of what I think about education. I think. Thank God for the pandemic. First of all, like my school when I got in there, thank God for scholarships, but it was $60,000. It's now a hundred thousand a year. That's insane. Like no, like education is a fundamental right. It is a birthright. We should not like, there's a lot of countries don't charge that. Like that's insane. So I'm really excited actually for schools like mine to get knocked down a peg because no one should pay. I don't give a fuck what like network you have. It's just not right. It's not right.
0: We could go for probably an hour on that topic. On that alone.
1: Because I have a whole lot
0: more to say. (laughs) I know you do as well, but we'll table that conversation for another day. Let's talk about our, our main topic for today, which is different examples of traction in the pandemic. What I wanna focus on is three different categories of traction which is revenue, users, and people. Uh, yep. And I have a feeling the listening audience most wants to hear about revenue and user traction. So we're going to save that for the end. And we'll start, <laughs> we're going to do a reverse order. Let's start with people traction. And what I want to first ask here uh, before you talk about some examples of this is we don't usually think about traction in terms of people and headcount. So how do you define this section of traction as it relates
1: to people? Yeah. Yeah, great question. So through our accelerator program, what makes us unique is that we're a traction-focused accelerator program. Yeah, we have the connections to the VCs and all that from my experience. And what they love is the fact that we tr- we focus on what they need founders to have. But when our founders come in, they each are focusing on different areas of their business and what they consider traction. And we're there to support them in hitting those goals. But one of the things, especially in this cohort that we saw is we have someone who's been in business for 10 years now, they have a service based company. They're already in the millions. However, they had to do a pivot because of the pandemic, how they were doing business before had to be different and they had to change. So they're kind of becoming a new company in a way. And so one of the things they had to focus on in terms of traction was how do we build from the ground up? And one of the best, actually the greatest asset you will ever have in your company is not technology. It is people it is you as the founder and the ceo or whatever and then it is the team that helps you make it happen you can have all the other things but the technology can't work the clients can't come in if you don't have the people to make it happen and so from attraction perspective in that regard that particular founder had to really look at where are we now and where are we going because she had some people on her team who had been there for a while but they didn't necessarily like the direction they were going in because that's not their, was their world. Right. And so one of the sayings that I love and hate at the same time is from Warren Buffett, because I don't think this is standard across. He says, what got you here won't get you there. And I think there are things in your company that fundamentally need to remain like In place,
0: core values I think are very important.
1: Stuff like that because that's why you get the WeWorks and the the ups of the world is that people went so far away from their values and their ultimate north star because they got so caught up. But that means certain ways that you're approaching growth in your company, and part of that is people. And what I had to tell this founder because it was very very hard for her, and the people part is a hard. Like I HR is one of the things I hate the most as a CEO. I hate Hmm. it because One, I love people, but also realizing that I am responsible to make sure that this is the right environment for them to thrive. And if it is not, what is an alternative here? And so that's what that founder had to go through is she had to do a couple of layoffs of people because the biggest thing here is that she needed to make room for people that were willing to go to the next level with them. And she had some people that that wasn't of interest to them. And the fear is, well, they depend on us. And so we put a plan together of what does that look like, you know, to make sure that they're in a good place, because more importantly, as a founder and, and a leader of any company is you have to realize that if you're not happy with the way they're kind of executing, they're probably not happy in that position either. And so it's a doing a dis- like disservice to everyone. If you keep them in that place, and if there's not another role, then where what can we do to kind of transition this person? But what ended up happening from that is it ended up making room for traction in the sense of now that creates space for us to bring people in that can help us hit these new goals and this new direction we're going in. And they started seeing a spike in like pre-sales for a new product that they were going to release. They started just seeing more productivity amongst their team in general. So from a, the people perspective that has a, I mean, it trickles across your organization. If you do not have the right people in place and doing the appropriate things, you are going to feel it everywhere. Every single place in the company will be affected. If your team are, is not in the, in the right position. Like I think of, I mean, startups are a, it's a mini people sport. It's a soccer. It's not basketball. It's not a superstar sport. And if you are playing that way, you're probably going to crash and burn. It's that you might have the most amazing striker, the messies of the world or whatever, but that superstar could pass it to the next person, the next person. And when it gets down to the final person to get it into the goal, if that person misses, it doesn't matter what everybody else up the chain or throughout the organization did if that one person that even was at the end of the line wasn't able to execute in the right way. So that's how you need to look at your companies because that is one of the biggest things that will impact traction. And that's something we're even experiencing now to get shit done is that we've expanded our team quite a bit during the pandemic. And my role was to, okay, I need to make sure we're putting the right people in place, but also the right systems to help them do their job. And we saw just productivity go like this, like this. But that's my job as the founder and the CEO to say, we're basically as CEOs, we're glorified project managers, basically. I'm customer service. I'm freaking janitor. I'm payroll, whatever it is. But it's my job to make sure that we're putting the right people in place. And actually the last year I've become obsessed with coaches of NBA teams like Phil Jackson. One of the best leadership books I've read to date is called 11 Rings, The Soul of Success by Phil Jackson. And he talks about how he had to deal with superstars like the Kobe's or the Michael's and then creating teams that can mesh off of each other and saying, no, you can be so great, Michael or Kobe, but this cannot be a superstar team. This cannot be an all-star championship team. If we don't have the right players really helping and building off of each other. So that's why the people piece is one of the most important when it comes to traction. That's even down to the founder. Like if you are not okay, you are the freaking heartbeat. If you're not okay, the the company will collapse. So the people part is probably the most important when you're looking at traction because that determines how execution will get done.
0: Yeah. Uh, And for those who watched the last dance documentary, one of the things that Phil Jackson talked about was in the late eighties being a, like the challenge of getting MJ to adopt the triangle offense, because it meant some of his possessions would get taken away and other people would shoot more. But ultimately when they did that, it led to six rings.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's not a coincidence that he has 11 rings as a coach. I think it's the most in NBA. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it's a lot when you're dealing with so many, I mean, you're talking about superstar athletes. That's ego, ego, ego. Like that is so-
0: And not just like good, but literally the best, the top five of all time, MJ, Kobe, and Shaq.
1: And and it's like all of these motherfuckers had issues with that. Like- They were just like, no, I need to have spotlight on me because then you have everybody in their life, like their agents, their whoever saying, no, you're the superstar. You make that go right. But at the end of the day, there's no company I know that is exceptional without the people being exceptional and people cannot be exceptional if they're not doing the things that they love to do and are good at. And that is the responsibility of the leaders of any organization to make sure we understand the people that are coming within our organization and how they can fit into that because this is a values trade-off i tell everybody that joins our team that at the end of the day that you are bringing something that is of value to us as much as we are offering a position to you this is a trade-off and if you are not in a position where you can feel like you're thriving, that's a disservice for everybody. I don't want you doing something like, of course, there's going to be things that come up that you might not love. But for the most part, I want at least 80% of your work to be something you love and you're good at, because I know my ROI is going to be there.
0: Right. Let's continue this basketball analogy for a moment. And I want you to play defense here. Uh, it's so, so cheesy that I said that, but, <laughs> and, and coming back to the story you mentioned of one of the companies in the accelerator who kind of used the pandemic as a moment to hit the pause button, look at who are the team members we need, who are the team members we don't need. Cause it doesn't align with where this company needs to go. If I'm listening to the show right now and I hear that, and I, here's what I'm thinking. Hmm. Alex, are you just conveniently describing layoffs as traction? So play defense on that one for me.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. No, absolutely not. Because there's companies right now that are using it as a means to enhance bottom line and forgetting about the people. So Marriott is a good example um, of that. They're actually doing quite well, but they also laid off 10,000 people, which is, that's insane. But what I mean by the people piece is saying, if there are people in your organization, so I think of USPS as a great example of this. I think there's maybe one USPS experience I've ever had that was been good, or maybe a couple. Post
0: Office is the worst place to visit.
1: <laughs> it's the worst place to visit because people are so unhappy. They're so unhappy because, I mean, probably the way they're being treated, right? And so I think of any company, any founder I know, where we had really tough times in our companies, it came down to people and not being happy. And that's where it becomes uh, the traction piece is, are we ensuring that the people in our company are receiving just as much as we're getting in value from them, right? Is that in this founder's case, she had people literally like in her organization that were openly not liking the new direction that they needed to go in for that company to evolve. And one of my friends even told me, this happened to her company, Uh, I'm not gonna say the name, but this happened to her company where she had one person, they started pivoting. And what happens in startups all the time, you have to pivot, is that they pivoted and there was one person on their team that hated it so much. They were talking so much shit to everybody else in the organization it became toxic cancer. And it is a disservice to everybody at that point. Right. So in this case, the traction piece was around, do we have the people in place that not only are capable of being here, but want to be here because your company is, you have a North star to get to, Right. And you want to make sure that everybody, when you think of the bottleneck analogy, they think they show you the people in the line and then one person might be holding it back. But it's saying that that person might feel shackled at just as much as you do. So unless we can get in alignment and say, you know what, the first thing is, do you even believe in the mission and where we're trying to go anymore? If you're not even there game over. There's not even a conversation to be had. That's like in any relationship. If you can't even get an alignment about where you're ultimately trying to go, it's not gonna work. And it's gonna be toxic and tumultuous for everybody. And so in that case, it's not saying, just get rid of people because we have somewhere to go. It's saying, are the people in the squad right now, are they one willing and able to go where we need to go And let's say if they're not, what's an alternative? What to do next? How can we help them? But of the people that say, you know what? I want to go and I still believe in this and I believe in the direction, but I don't know how I fit anymore. There's a difference because what that founder also did, she had some people like that and they decided together, now given what we need from the people on our team, here are the areas of the company that we have available. And based on what you've done before and what it sounds like you're interested in, this is perhaps maybe something you can try out, right? But that's why it's so important to have ongoing conversations like I do quarterly reviews of my team, and it's not just me reviewing them and saying, what can I do for you? right? Like what am I what do you need me to do as a leader? Where am I dropping the ball? And they're honest with me, you know. And so by having this conversation like saying not only what do you like, what do you don't like, but more importantly, what have you been doing in the company that you love, but also what you haven't really liked as much, Because as you evolve with the organization, you stay in tune with the people on your team to be able to say, hey, maybe let's shift them out of here and move them here. And that person's happiest when they're doing what they like to do. And then more importantly, it maximizes the return for your company, because at the end of the day, you have a fiduciary responsibility as a business owner. We're not doing this for play play. Let's just like let's be real. This isn't just to have a kumbaya with people you have a fiduciary responsibility to grow your company. And a part of that and the hardest part is the people part. So it's ensuring that you are putting together a team that is maximizing their strengths, their passions, and in the right positions for your company to grow.
0: So it's not about, so the key distinction here is there is layoffs because of declining revenue or just general fear and then there is, let's take a look at what we're trying to accomplish as a company. What's our mission? How do we need to alter how we're executing on that mission and who's still on board with that and who's not and who's the best, how do we maybe even adjust roles as a result it, of that?
1: Exactly. And more importantly, I think that what needs to be called out here, this founder wasn't going through any decline in revenue at all, actually. It was more of, ooh, let's. this is preventative, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're seeing a tension in our team that this is this not going to be healthy. If there is a decline in revenue that is always on the leaders of the organization. If there's a decline in revenue in my organization, that's on me. Because I again, glorified project manager, what is happening amongst the organization that we're seeing something drop off and that's probably because there's not probably a clear there's not a clear vision and transparency around goals and expectations or how it needs to get done, right? And in making sure we're checking in with the people in those roles to ensure that they are again, willing and able to do those things. And that requires a constant check-in and having the right people. If you have a big organization, the right managers in place, because Lord knows not everybody's a manager. And that's also another topic for another day about there's a lot of times there's people in organizations that are making it hell because they should not, they don't have no, no business managing no people. They are more lone wolves and let them do what they got to do and find another way to promote them, but do not put people under them. So mm. that's a whole whole different thing. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times the decline in revenue is on that company and not, or the, the leaders of that company and not being on top of what's happening here. Yeah. Let's
0: talk about the users and the revenue traction now. What have you seen from the Get Shit Done Accelerator companies? How are they growing users? How are they growing revenue? And actually I'll tell you the funny thing is this episode is coming one week after we just had uh, Kathleen Brown on the show who oh, hey. talked about her pivot and how they were driving pre-launch interest uh, through selling masks and everything. But but go ahead. What have you seen on the user revenue side?
1: Love Kathleen. She was- Oh, in- and she
0: shouted you out at the end of the episode, actually.
1: <laughs> She's one of our cohort queens. Um, and get shit done queen. Yeah, so let's break it down by users and then revenue. Revenue is like the main thing most founders come in with. But you have someone like, Kathleen, that was like, I'm focused on users right now. We have plenty of founders that do that. So with the user side, I'll give an example of NASA. NASA Michler, she's the founder of Everest Effect. They are a disaster relief platform. When she came into our accelerator, she was saying, okay, we need to make sure that we're hitting these user goals because we need to close capital. Like at the end of the day, like you need to up Momentum, what's going on in terms of how the market's responding to your product. She came in and because we're a traction accelerator was saying, we need to get X amount of users. We need to close X amount of capital. What are the traction goals we need to hit for all of these, these goals to happen? So the first thing we had to look at was what are we doing to get users on board, right? And so you have her focusing and leaning into distribution strategies for her, she has partners like the Wal- now the Walmarts of the world. This was during the Accelerator and after. She closed Walmarts of the world, the TaskRabbit's of the world. You know, now she's gone into or- like public schools, whatever. But when she was in the Accelerator and right after, she saw an increase of 222% in users because she got so focused in the framework to use, proprietary frameworks are really driven around getting the founder focused on what needs to happen right now. Because the issue for most founders is that we're inherently visionaries. We have to, the balancing act is the fact that we have to focus on one, looking ahead, but also looking down. That's like, if you're driving your car, you're on your phone. <laughs> it's not always the, the safest scenario, um, but you have to be present, but also in the future. It is the craziest balancing act. And that's where sometimes you crash and then you have to, you know, repair and get back up but that's a balancing act. But most importantly, founders do the best when they have, and it's they've done scientific studies on this. The most successful founders are the ones that are able to get a, the ability to get focused on what matters right now. And that's what we do for our founders. We help them to show look at holistically North star, because North star is going to help you make decisions and then look at what's the year goal. Now let's look at the quarter because that's what we're in. In order to hit that yearly goal, In order to go to your ultimate North Star, you got to figure out what you have to do right now. What's in your arsenal right now to get there? And so what someone like her did was say, we need to get more users. How can we get a lot of new users at once? Let's partner with these organizations. But also, let's figure out how do we partner with them in a way that's mutually beneficial? Their disaster relief platform, there's disasters happening all over the world, whether it's the fires, whether it's hurricanes, whether it's whatever it is because of the climate change. And they're saying, look, we've built out this technology. And if you join our marketplace to distribute these items and people can gift it to people in need, because what she found in her market was that 60% of what is donated in a disaster is actually things people don't need. 60%. That's insane. 60%. And she's saying we're going to make sure we're collaborating with people that have the goods and enable consumers to donate the right things, and that's a win for everybody. So she started signing people up like this, and then just um, she was that was spring. I recently talked to one of her lead investors, which she closed probably a month ago. And I remember when she closed it, like I, she won't ever let me show the picture. But right before she was about to close in a pandemic, she was about to go into labor for with her second child. <laughs> She sent me a picture of her in the delivery room with her belly and her laptop on the <laughs> and literally it was about to be go time. Like a baby's about to fall out of her. Crop. Um, but she was getting attraction traction still. Another good example of this is a founder, Oksana. She's in Chicago. When she came in, she has a company called easy load. She came into the, our last cohort, the summer cohort. And her goal is I need to raise money for investors. And when we looked under the hood, because that's what we do, the first week of our accelerator, we're like, we're not doing shit until we understand what's actually happening in this company and what's working and not.
0: Can I pause you right there and just ask, how many founders come through your program and the first thing they say is, I need to raise money?
1: (laughs) Well, I would say it's probably 40%, forty percent And usually what ends up happening is that there's something in traction they need to have happen. And then it sets them up. So Oksana is a great example, this killer founder. She's had a company acquired before. She has basically think of it like the Intuit for logistics industry. And she had all these, she had users, but she hadn't them yet. So I was like, "Oksana, Oksana, you want to raise this money from capital of capital from investors, but look, they're going to want to see what's the business model here and you haven't monetized yet. So you have a gold mine you're sitting on. How can we monetize them? She started focusing on developing the sales pipeline for it. Literally, that was the first second, first week of the accelerator. We talked about that. And I was like, fundraising is a full-time job on top of your job. If you don't prove this out, you're just going to be having conversations with investors and having them. And they're going to tell you the same thing. You need more traction. So she started focusing on the sales piece and converting that user base to monetary And what ended up happening is when she started focusing on her gold mine, she started seeing conversions of 60%, not increase of 60%, conversions of 60%. And she was like, fuck fundraising, like we have money coming in. So she was like, I'm focusing on this. They developed a streamlined approach to how they were doing their user onboarding and sales and so on and so forth. She ended up doing our demo day a month later, got her first $50,000 check. So by focusing on the thing that is, again, what the founder can control, it is the most important thing from a user perspective or revenue perspective. So let's look at revenue, right? Revenue side is we've had founders who, let's take Christina Broderick. She's the founder of Ignite EDU. When she came into our accelerator program, she was part-time or or she was full-time in her social work job and you know had this company and she felt like she was spinning and spinning her goal when coming into the accelerator was i want to be full time in my business and a good chunk of our founders are like part time or full time jobs and doing their company on the side and so when she came in she was like i want to be full time and i want to figure out what i need to do so she had to focus on one people part She had people she was working with and they were kind of doing it to do it, but they weren't that passionate. So she had to reconfigure her team. And then she had to look at, well, what do we need to lean into? Who's responding to this? At first, she was focusing on high school and college students for mental wellness. And then she started seeing who was actually responding specifically in the pandemic, who was responding most. It was a particular cohort of people. And so it's like, that's your 80-20, which is what we have our founders look at. What's the 20% producing 80% of your results? So when she started focusing on that 20%, she started seeing, and like right after the accelerator, started seeing, I mean, in 30 days of focusing on that group, she saw a 5,000% increase in revenues. And she had quit her full-time job and she was basically making as much or more than that full-time job in her company after 30 days from focusing on what she needed to focus on in traction.
0: How did she figure out like, Hey, this is the 20%. What was she looking at to say, this is where we focus? Cause I think out of a hundred percent, there's a good take any chunk of 20. How did she figure out which 20?
1: I think this is a practice every founder needs to do at any point in their company. There's the data never lies, right? It is always there. That's why The get shit done is we're, we are rallying cry is fuck 4%. We're the fuck 4% movement, because as much as everyone likes to say, if female founders just got more capital from investors, we'd all be saved. It's like, no, you know, the problem here, because I like receipts, follow the receipts. The receipts are telling us female founders actually make up nearly 50% of entrepreneurs, but our companies only bring in 4% of total business revenues. I don't give a fuck about your funding conversation. She can't even get to the table with investors because she doesn't have traction. So that's what we get our founders focused on, is what is that 20% that is in your company? Someone like Christina, it was looking at the user data. Look at people that were coming to her events. Look at what, who were those people signing up? What was their age? What were they doing? Were they in different schools? If you're an e-commerce company, and I can get the next example I'll get into will be a good example of this too... You can look at Shopify has so many fucking numbers for you. Like there's so much. If you're on Square, I just did this exercise with the founder the other day where it was just like, oh, how do we decide what we're going to sell and move into product wise for next month? What I find is that founders are not able to get to their 20%. And what we do in our program, in our accelerator often, or actually all the time, is we force our founders to measure everything because you can't optimize anything if you don't know what's happening. If you don't measure it, you can't fix it. Like you just don't, you just can't. So that's the fundamental thing is you have to be measuring what is happening. Keep a pulse on who's responding to it. Like even through iterations of the accelerator, we are so much more clear and we'll get clearer and clearer as we keep doing it, clear about who we best serve. It is a very particular type of founder. We know who it is. And so when we do our recruiting efforts and our community efforts, we know who we need to partner with distribution wise. We know who are the people we need to talk to. And instead of just trying to do a wide net at some point, when my friend Michael Donnelly says very often is you have to move from scrappy to savvy and you move from scrappy to savvy by looking at the data, you need to track that. And there's so much out there for you to track. Even if you're a small company that doesn't have robust systems, you can look at your freaking Instagram followers. Instagram has a dashboard for you. Like you can see who your people are. So, you have to first measure. That's how our founders get into who those people are and how to lean into it more. The second example of this from a revenue is Lauren Garvey from the TAC Hack. She's like the real, real of the equestrian industry. Oh. When she came in, she felt stuck. She was in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, Michigan. And she's just like, look, I'm not in New York anymore. I don't have a network, Like, but I think we're really on to something. And the second week she was in the accelerator, I remember she had this consigner program that she hated. She's like, oh, I hate it. It's taking up so much time. And some of the folks that we're serving are pain in the ass, right? And I was like, okay, Lauren, let's take a look under the hood. I want you to tell me what's the percentage of revenue coming from that particular effort in your business. She was like, Alex, I'm pretty sure it's pretty big because like some of the names she was dealing with, like brands wise, She thought because of the affiliation with them, oh my God, it must be a lot. But when she actually looked behind the hood, she saw it was only bringing 5% of her revenues. And this happens very often for founders where the things we think are producing and actually the things that require a lot of energy, a lot of times that we hate and require a lot of energy are usually the sucks in our business. They're usually not producing as much as we think they are. And that's why measuring is so important. When she saw 5%, that same day, she was like, okay, Alex, I'm getting off the phone with you. I'm shutting this shit down. I'm, t- I'm sending like a message to all these people saying, here's how this program is going to work. If you're on board, cool. But if not, here's the next steps of how we'll depart this relationship. What she ended up experiencing is by just removing that thing in her company that was such a bottleneck, she started seeing and measuring it, being able to see the numbers behind it. She started seeing consecutive month-over-month growth of 30 to 40%. And then I had a conversation with her a month ago where she told me that in July and August of 2020 alone, beat out all of her numbers for 2019.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So when you're able to get that agile and so hyper-focused in your business, no matter what area you're in, if you listen to all the examples I gave you, you'll notice that those founders had to really dive into what is the thing in my business that is giving me results? And what are the things that are inhibiting us from getting to the next level? And there's usually a lot of fat because we like to throw out so many things because the startup ecosystems, like just throw a ton of shit on the wall. And I'm like, no, stop, so stop. Like just like intentionally do it, test things out. But quite frankly, it's just like gut wise, you know, some things are just like, "Mm, this is not even our customer, right? But you do need to test things. And quite frankly, a lot of times, some of the things you test are the things that you might be pleasantly surprised and be like, Actually, a lot of times, the things that I never thought would work <laughs> worked really well. But you have to test. But when you test and, quote, unquote, throw things at the wall, I don't even want to use that term. Get rid of that term out of your vernacular. When you're testing things intentionally, it is saying we're going to give it a certain amount of time, and we are hoping to hit these benchmarks. If we measure it and see what's happening you know, through this testing period, we can measure and say, ooh, this thing didn't work. What if we did this? We can optimize But after a certain amount, if it still doesn't do it, what we need it to do, even through the optimization, that means we need to move on. That's agility. That's why startups are killing the game. The ones that are killing the game is because they're able to move at a pace and test things at a pace that corporations can't. That's why there's so much corporate innovation right now, because that ability to move and get to kind of the fundamental um, solution is really important. So your ability to get focused is really really important in terms of producing traction it's hard to do but you're able to do it if you're able to measure and measure with intention and listen to it while also honoring your gut as a founder because some of the best decisions any founder i know makes is cuz they're like let's try this shit out i feel like it's going to work so i think it's a it's a combination
0: well you've got me motivated and you got me a little bit bummed that I, as a man, cannot participate in Deacon <laughs> Accelerator because I know I'm...
1: identifying, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, let's uh, learn now. You know, it's January 2021. When is the next cohort going live? What are the qualifications? How do people apply?
1: Yeah, great question. So 2021, our next cohort will be February. February 9th is launch. We have a rolling application. We'll do a big application the next week. Um, our cohort is wrapping up and then they'll do demo day on december 15th so many it's it's public so anyone can come um you just have to sign up for it to be get the access to our platform so february 9th in terms of qualifications we are an accelerator and that's kind of confusing because some accelerators also allow people an idea so like that's i know accelerators and incubators are interchangeable at this point we are not an incubator We are definitely an accelerator. So meaning when you come in, you have to come in with something we can actually accelerate. That's our superpower spot is that if you have some form of revenue or users or proprietary technology, something you've had to already kind of do yourself. So then we can kind of say, Ooh, how can we help you get unstuck or take this to the next level? So there's not a specific number or anything like that. We have, Founders across the board, like one of our founders in this cohort is already in the millions. We have some that have are pre-revenue, but they have users, right? So it just really depends. And it's about, one, the ability to scale, two, we focus on scale companies. And then also what we look for is founders with a really clear and passionate North Star. That's big too, because we find we want to back people that are really in it and really motivated by the impact that they want to make. So I would say those are the main ones.
0: What's the URL if people want to apply?
1: Shegetsshitdone.com.
0: Shegetsshitdone.com. And one thing I want everyone listening to keep in mind, as you heard from one of the examples, Alex, Gabe, is that you don't have to be a high growth tech company. You could have a services business that you're trying to scale. It is not, I think most people think accelerator, they automatically think, oh, I have to be building an app. Uh, It's not the case here. It is. Do you have a business that you are trying to grow and scale of any kind?
1: I would say each cohort. We have about thirty percent, twenty to thirty percent services companies. Our last demo day, People's Choice winner was actually a consulting company. That's great. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about now. uh, Who's someone you want to shout out? Alex could be a mentor, a colleague, a friend, an advisor, someone in the cohort. You only get one though. That's the only key. You only only shout out one person.
1: Oh, that's so, so hard. Oh, who do I want to shout out? Um, I want to shout out Tony Wilkins. He is an angel investor in Chicago, one of the top angel, black angel investors in the, the United States. Why I'm shouting out Tony is that, one, he's just the most phenomenal human being. And any founder that knows him, like everyone, when you say like, there's just always like a smile because everyone's just like, oh, it's Tony. It's just like, ugh. Tony is such an amazing, like advocate for founders. He actually uses, you know, his extensive experience in finance to fund startups. Like his day job helps to fund his passion. And he spends a lot of his time now, whether if he's not sailing or driving his new fancy car, if, you know, spending, I mean, this year alone, he's had like talked to like 400 hours with founders. And so he's in really- addition to a day job in existence. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so he's just such an advocate and has been a huge advocate and mentor for me. He invested in my last company, but he's seen me through every single company I've had since I was around like 1920. So he's for over a decade now has, has been there. So I'm shouting him out because he's one of those people in the ecosystem that what I like to say is we need comrades instead of just allies. Allies are more passive. Tony is a comrade because he's always in, for the founders he believes in, he's in the trenches with them. So um, I'm shouting him out because he's been doing this work a very, very long time.
0: Let's go with our final one or two lessons or takeaways for the audience based on the discussion today. I'll go first, then I'll toss it to you. Our our topic today and what we covered was uh, five different examples of women-founded companies experiencing traction through the pandemic. To me, I think the biggest lesson I have in this is... Don't ignore your numbers, and I think especially so the ones that you know you're ignoring because it's uncomfortable to look at them.
1: Yep. Oh yeah, that's the biggest thing why a lot of people don't. They're like it has to be working.
0: <laughs> Alex, on your end, what, what are what are one or two lessons or takeaways for the audience?
1: Wow, one or two. You uh, as you know, I can talk and talk. So I'm gonna limit it to one or two. Okay. So I would say kind of echoing what what you just, well, actually let's, I'll, I'll start with this one. Focus, just get focused. And what does that mean? Is that as a startup founder, you have a limited availability of energy and resources, especially people. And so you cannot try to do all of these, like when founders come to me and they're like, Oh, our competitors like Amazon. am like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's really not. Amazon will eat you for breakfast. If it's, around manpower but where they can't is if you really lean into the things that you're good at so that's a founder superpower your ability to get focused on what you're really good at right now instead of developing all these bells and whistles that no one actually asked you for and you thought was cool but there's really nothing to back it up so that means your ability to get focused and execute on the right things is being able to talk to your customers constantly i talk to my target every single day i talk to the people we serve best every day i have spent thousands of hours like i'm probably at 10,000. i i'm probably at that point now thousands of hours talking to female founders writing notes i have so much data one of my friends was like you are probably one of the most dangerous women in business because he was like you have a repository of all these founders and know across the the board but that allows me to not roll out shit that no one asked for when we roll out things we get traction because One, I've developed hand in hand with my users and with my customers, with the people we serve best. And then more importantly, you get focused on those people, but also make sure that you don't have any too many burners on because you can't get focused. If you have so much happening, you have to really, and what we do with our founders and they have to give impact scores to get to their bullseye is to say of all the initiatives we have going on right now, we need to one rate the, give it a one to five scale, how much it's gonna be to implement, but also rate the impact we think will will make. By having those scores there, it helps you to prioritize. So get focused and the next thing, kind of mimicking what you just said, is measure, 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 measure. If you are not measuring, you do not have a pulse on your business and you're just doing to do. That is not getting shit done that is leading you to nowhere. So measure things, it can be uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be a fancy projection spreadsheet. It can literally just say, let's bucket out all of our platforms of where revenue is coming from, or users are coming from, and let's intentionally make sure that we're seeing, given the level of effort and time in each one of these, what's the ROI? And there's plenty of tools that you're using that will give you that information. You don't need to track a million metrics. Take your top key KPIs and stay on top of them and make sure that you're seeing what's happening in your business so you're not spending and wasting your time on things that are not actually getting you to where you would like to go.
0: My final question, which is how we end every episode of the show, fill in the blank, Alex. Entrepreneurship is blank. Freedom. Say more on that.
1: It's freedom. And freedom to me is not just like this idea of people like, oh, you're your own boss. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're not your own boss. Because whether you have investors, you're definitely not your own boss. Um, also, more importantly, your customers are your boss. Mm-hmm. They're your boss. I have a, I always have a boss. It's that I have a responsibility to the people I serve every single day. They are my boss. They dictate what I end up doing and so I can serve them better. Freedom meaning the reason... It goes back to our North Star, Get Shit Done. The reason I even started Get Shit Done is because of my own personal experiences, scaling companies um, and seeing not enough women at the table. More importantly, going back to the fuck 4% is that I see entrepreneurship as one of the fundamental ways that we can bridge the wealth gap for women. And in order to do that, we have to get beyond 4%. So I mean freedom in the sense of what you're able to achieve as an entrepreneur, if you're able to get it right, what you achieve and what most founders are trying to do, if you're doing it, if you're a good founder, not just doing it for the money, because I usually don't see that work out. Well, most founders have a why behind it and the why means they want to cause a dent in the world, somehow make an impact, they want to create an impact in their communities. For me in particular, I care so much about generational wealth for black people. And more importantly, they're also break it down to their families. They want to create a legacy and have something to pass on. And that's where the wealth generation comes from. Most people are doing entrepreneurship because it's a one of the key ways that you can develop wealth anywhere if you're doing it right. Um, And what does that mean? It's not just to put it back in your pockets. That wealth can be distributed in so many different ways. And so that's what I mean by freedom. It's freedom to be able to have a say in what's happening in the world. We saw it in the pandemic. You had billionaire philanthropists that were able to step in. That's what their wealth allowed them to do. You have people like Jeff Bezos clapping back at Donald Trump because you know what? He can. (laughs) You know, he can and he has the ammo to be able to do it. So- that's what I mean. Freedom to be able to make the impact that you envision. That's freedom to me, not just the the bullshit work from anywhere, whatever. That's that's not that's not interesting.
0: I like that a lot. Freedom, because you have the ability to have a say. Uh, well, this is. Probably the easiest interview I've ever done. I think I only asked like four questions the whole time. Uh, so thank you for that.
1: Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. My, my mom's like, oh, my God, you're your father. you just talking about- <laughs> uh,
0: But if there's one thing I think is always guaranteed out of an Alex Batdorf conversation is that you will get the real and the raw with no fluff. So, Alex, thank you so much for coming back on the show today. Uh, This was fantastic. I enjoyed it. And remember, everyone, um, you can learn more. And if you want to apply to the next cohort in their accelerator, it is SheGetsShitDone.com. Thanks for joining today, Alex. Thank you. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast, is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.